Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Katie and I moved to the Los Angeles area in the year 2006, and shortly after we arrived, I needed to find a part-time job. After a few interview cycles at various places, I ended up getting an offer to work at the Apple Computer Store downtown Pasadena. It was a part-time gig, 11 bucks an hour, but it was the Apple Store. It was a hip, sleek place filled with hip, diverse people, all who shared a passion for Apple and its products. Now this was the pre-iPhone era of Apple stores when most of our sales that we made were laptops and iPods. Back when the store was usually full, but before the era of people lining up for hours and days to be the first to buy the latest phone. And many who worked for Apple considered this period of time, the pre-iPhone era, to be the best time to have been an Apple retail employee. We were not paid on commission, so there was not necessarily an incentive to keep closing sales, but rather we were given bonuses based on customer satisfaction, and we were trained and expected to take our time with customers, to patiently answer their questions and explore their interests, to listen to the kinds of projects they work on so we could make the best recommendation for them on what kind of computer to offer them. I started work in July of 2006, and I remember that one of the very first customers I had an opportunity to work with was a photojournalist who worked for an LA magazine. She was looking for a new computer to edit store and organize her photos, and as we were discussing the options, she told me about her latest story, months in the making. She asked me, did you go out to see the super bloom last year? My ignorance about what a super bloom was, where it had happened and so forth, must have been pretty obvious because she immediately went into a very helpful explanation. She said that every 10 years or so, there's a ton of rainfall in the desert and wilderness area of Death Valley, California. One of the hottest and driest places in the world, a place where average temperatures can soar to over 120 degrees Fahrenheit and where the record set is near 200 degrees Fahrenheit. When the rain comes, the constant rain cools the temperatures down to a balmy 90, soaks the ground, though, 
flooding old creek beds, and eventually all of this rain saturates the ground and causes millions of wildflower seeds to germinate and bloom. Wildflowers bloom in Death Valley all the time, but every decade there's enough rain for all of them to bloom at once, hence super bloom. The photographer I was talking to had been assigned by her magazine to go out to Death Valley and take pictures of the previous year's Superbloom, the 2005 Superbloom, an event that botanists and geologists still consider to be the bloom of the century. Do you want to see some pictures? She asked me. She pulled out her old laptop and showed me some satellite imagery like this, which shows parts of Death Valley before the rainfall, and then this, which shows uh, the same part after the rainfall, or this one, before and after. She proceeded to show me other pictures of the desert wilderness blanketed in carpets of orange and purple and white flowers. An event like this attracts pilgrims in the tens of thousands who drive out to Death Valley to snap pictures of wildflowers that won't bloom again for 10 years or more super blooms. In church, because I know you might want a little bit more on this, and because it's the third Sunday of Advent and I'm feeling a little homiletically benevolent, take a look at this video clip. This arid wasteland is the hottest place on earth, boasting annual temperatures in excess of 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Salt and rock stretch on into oblivion, but beneath the sun-scorched sands lies a sleeping beauty. When the time is right, it will rise up in an act of defiance against the inhospitable terrain. And it's not alone. There are others, thousands upon thousands of others. Together, they prove that even in the most hostile of climates, there is still the potential for a grand efflorescence. A super bloom. I'm amazed at what can survive here. I've been a park ranger here for about 25 years. I've seen three of these super blooms. 1998 was my first one, and then 2005 was the next one. And then this year, of course. Super bloom is the unofficial term used to describe an above average bloom of desert wildflowers. They're impossible to predict as they are completely reliant on an overabundance of rain, a scarce commodity in Death Valley. An average year here in Death Valley for rainfall is a little less than two inches, which is really, really dry. We are the driest place in the nation. You need a slow drenching rains, not one of those summer thunderstorms that quickly sweep away. When enough rain comes along, soaking deep into the soil, all these hillsides that are normally just barren and a super bloom, almost everything is covered with flowers. Seeds may lie dormant for years or even decades, waiting for enough rain to support their life cycle. Fortunately, they come equipped with a natural insurance policy, a protective coating which prevents them from sprouting prematurely. This coating may be wax, protein, or chemical based and requires a generous amount of water to fully erode it before allowing the seed to properly germinate.
Things are pushed right to the edge of what they can tolerate here. That's the celebration of life here in Death Valley. That's life at its peak. For Science Friday, I'm Christian. Happy third Sunday of Advent. There are many great things that we might speak about on the third Sunday of Advent, but today I want to talk about a word that is at the heart of all Christian faith, life, and work. I want to talk about hope. Hope, to me, is the best of all the Advent words. And don't get me wrong, I like love, fine. I like joy, fine. I like peace, fine. And I know that the Bible says the greatest of these is supposed to be love, but hope I like best of all. Dickinson says that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Langston Hughes, I think, says it better. Sometimes when I'm lonely, I don't know why, I keep thinking I won't be lonely in the by and by. But Charlotte Smith, I think, says it best. Oh, hope, she prays, thou soother sweet of human woes, how shall I lure thee to my haunts forlorn? I will bless thee, who though slow art sure. This word, hope, this soother sweet of human woe is a good word for us to pause on today, to linger over. It's a good word to consider as we light the third candle today, as we sing yet more Advent songs of yearning, as we peek outside our windows to see the day continue its annual retreat from the night. To hope is an essential Christian practice, it seems to me. It's the mandatory pre-run nutrition of all Christian faith. Apart from a steadfast belief in some measure of wholeness and peace yet to come, we cannot possibly hope to endure a lifetime experiencing loss and sorrow and pain. Apart from a belief in a coming day of justice and equity, we cannot possibly love our neighbors or raise our children or work on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. Apart from the conviction that God is yet to act, yet to intervene, yet to rescue and redeem, we really have no business at all being in church, not during Advent, nor on Christmas, nor on Easter, nor really on any Sunday of the year. The belief that there is something good yet to come, some work of God yet to be done, some moment yet to arrive, the belief that the present reality is not the end of the story, this animates all Christian faith. It's part of our DNA, not just to remember what God has done, not just to acknowledge what God is doing, but also to gather together and eagerly anticipate all that God will yet accomplish, to look forward expectantly to all that God will do one day. Of this hope, the New Testament writers say things like this, hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Hebrews chapter 6. Another writer puts it this way, to this end we toil and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, 1 Timothy 4. The Apostle Paul calls Christian hope a helmet that protects our minds in the daily struggle against the forces of sorrow and death and evil and injustice. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
or Ephesians chapter 6. Paul also says that in hope we were saved. And hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is a curious word. It's a word in English that almost has a built-in sense of yearning, doesn't it? Baked right into its monosyllabic staccato, long-voweled identity may be an entire lifetime of waiting and longing. Hope. It's no wonder to me that in Hebrew, the word for to hope and the word to wait are the same word. To hope for something is to wait for it, to endure until it arrives, to persevere despite a delay. We hope for something to come to pass that has not yet transpired. Church, I wonder what you are hoping for today. Set aside your abstractions and universal ideals of world peace for a moment and dig down deep into your soul. What are you longing for today? What is the, the thing, the, the reality, the circumstance that you are yearning for with all your being? Is there an ache that you're experiencing right now, an ache that you desperately need to believe is not the end of the story, an ache that seems to shove aside all other joy? In what part of your heart have the lights begun to dim? Where does it feel cold or empty? What is the reality in your life that makes you want to cry or scream or wail into the darkness of the lengthening night? Church, it's the third Sunday of Advent, and we are journeying out to those empty places together. We're going to go out to those places in our heart where joy and peace and love are hard to find. Church, we're headed out to the Advent wilderness, to the desert, to the parched places, to the burning sands, to the haunt of wild beasts, the places where there seems to be no path where we get lost in our own circles of pain and grief and anxiety. I wonder if maybe some of you have already found your way to this kind of wilderness this morning. Maybe the creek beds and springs in your life and your health and your body are drying up. Maybe the once fertile lands of your family or your friends now feel desolate and lifeless. I don't know all your stories today, church. I don't know all of your pains and worries and agony, but I do know some. In these wildernesses, some of you are worn down and exhausted after your daily skirmish with cancer or depression or addiction. In these deserts, some of you are carrying burdens of guilt and grief, having watched a child wander away from you without any idea if they will return. In these barren places, some of you have pitched your tent. You've given up on ever having a child. You've abandoned any belief that your pain will go away. You've stopped imagining that gainful employment is possible for you anymore. In these places, our hearts are fearful. Our hands are weak. Our knees are feeble. We aren't doing as great as we thought we would be doing on the third Sunday of Advent. But here we are, nonetheless. And so I wonder, what are you hoping to find in the wilderness on this third Sunday of Advent? What are we looking for? 
Are we here hoping to find neat and tidy answers to the complex problems we're experiencing? Are we expecting that as Christmas draws closer, we'll just somehow be able to magically import a fresh supply of joy that will displace our pain? Maybe some of us believe that merely by showing up to church, that by singing the songs and hearing the scriptures and praying the prayers, we will find the cure for whatever warring madness is occupying our hearts and minds and bodies. We can say, well, God, I made it to church. I got the kids ready and out the door. I got myself dressed. I put on my, be my best fake face of calm and peace. I did my part, God. Now you do your part and fix my problem, cure my pain, and my grief. We can sit impatiently through worship services, waiting for something divine, something healing, something miraculous to break in. But what happens when that's not how it works for us? What if it's not that simple? What, it, what happens when the pain we brought in with us is still there when we leave? What happens when we leave here and we find ourselves still wandering the same circular desert paths? What are you looking for today, church, here in whatever wilderness you are living in? What are you expecting to find? The prophet Isaiah wanders out with us to the scorched deserts of our lives today, out to the barren wildernesses, out to the places and spaces where the potential for life feels bleak and unmanageable. Isaiah, the prophet, goes out and stands upon the hard-baked earth and rugged mountainous terrain. He stoops down beside the dried-up creek beds and sun-scorched pools. He places a hand upon a dying broom tree. In this place, all that lives is pushed to its limits. Here they find their existence threatened with every passing hour. Here it, it seems any hope for the future feels foolish and naive here where the present is a struggle for survival. But in the wild places, in the empty spaces, amid burning sands and cracked earth, Isaiah the prophet is given a job. He's given a task. He's given a vision. The prophet Isaiah is told to preach to a congregation of people made up of those with weak hands, feeble knees, and fearful hearts. He's told to give them a vision of a coming day when the desert places, the barren lands, the lifeless terrain is turned into a place of life and peace and safety. Look at Isaiah's vision in today's reading from Isaiah chapter 35. He says, The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom abundantly. The desert will rejoice with joy and singing. Waters will break forth in the wilderness. Streams gush forth in the desert. Burning sands will become a pool. Thirsty ground will become a spring. The desolate place will become a marsh. Dry brush will become reeds and rushes. To a wilderness-bound people, a pained people, a weary people, a terrified people, Isaiah proclaims a vision of liberation and salvation. But look at this, though. It is not a vision of salvation where God will bring them out of the wilderness. It's not that God will guide them to a new place. That would have been good enough. But that one day, in Isaiah's vision, God will terraform the entire wilderness into a new creation. There will no longer be places 
of desolation and hopelessness and despair. God will end the tyranny of the desert, the tyranny of pain and suffering and isolation and fear, and God will flood the desert with waters of new life. On that day, eyes which could not see will now see. Ears which could not hear will now hear. Legs which could not walk will leap for joy. Lips which could not sing will speak and shout and praise. All that prevents us from seeing and hearing and living and speaking the will of God will be removed. All the obstacles that prevent us from experiencing life as God intended will be cast aside. All of the myriad of things that cause us to be ignorant of the will of God will be deconstructed, but it gets better. Not only will the landscape be changed, not only will we be changed, but God will put a highway there, a road, a path, something upon which we can walk and that we will know that we will get where we are going. We will not wander aimlessly in circles of addiction or despair. We will not wander into foolish paths of selfishness or greed or anger. On that road, Isaiah says, not even a fool will go astray. We will know the way to go and the path we walk will lead us to God, to home, to joy, to rest to gladness. On that path, Isaiah says, sorrow and sighing will flee away, for we will finally experience communion with God. Isaiah preaches hope to a people stuck in the wilderness. Hope that one day God will flood the deserts of human existence, that one day God will bring rain upon the parts of our lives that feel empty and barren, and that God will subdue the heat of those lands, those aching lands, and God will cause them to burst forth in life and joy and peace and praise. God tells a despairing people through Isaiah that one day God will lay a road in the wilderness that will lead them to himself, and that we will finally be rid of the burdens we presently carry. Isaiah preaches hope. Isaiah preaches super bloom to an empty and lifeless wilderness. I do not think that Isaiah would consider hope to be a thing with feathers that sings, nor does he think it merely the belief that things will get better. I do not think Isaiah would say hope is merely a word to sweetly soothe all human woe. No, for Isaiah, indeed for us as Christians, hope is a desert seed. A seed planted by God at our baptisms in the soil of our hearts. A seed that is designed to survive the difficulties and trials of the wilderness. A seed that sits in the desert sands of pain of agony, of isolation, of loneliness, of fear, and it waits, it yearns, it longs for God to bring the early and the late rains. Hope is a desert seed. And today, on this third Sunday of Advent, as another paper chain ring is pulled down, 
as we gear up for pageants and presents and meals and carols and family, as we draw ever closer to another Christmas festival, to another celebration of the incarnation of God in human flesh, it is good for us to remember that in the birth of Christ, the rain clouds began to form over the deserts of our world. And as Jesus healed and forgave and taught and showed what God's love was like in our wilderness, the rain has begun to fall. And as Jesus mounted the cross, the rain of God's mercy becomes a deluge, flooding the deserts of humanity. And as Jesus is raised to new life, the once dead ground has become soaked, the waters permeating the seeds of hope buried there. The work has been done. God has given us seeds of hope. Jesus has watered them. The Spirit is keeping them intact even while we suffer. And now we watch. And now we wait for life to spring forth in our wilderness. Now we long for and hope for all that is yet to come. And we align ourselves with that reality in every way we can. Hope is a desert seed blooming and blossoming despite all the brutal despair around us, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite all the many things in our life which tell us to just give up. Because of Christ, the wildflowers of hope will one day burst forth. Were Isaiah around today, he might have put it this way as the narrator in our video clip did. Beneath the sun-scorched lands lies a sleeping beauty, and when the time is right, it will rise up in an act of defiance against the inhospitable terrain, and it is not alone. Church, you are not alone because there are others, thousands upon thousands of others, and together we prove that even in the most hostile of climates, there is still the potential for a grand efflorescence, a super bloom. Happy third Sunday of Advent Church. May all of our hopes in Christ blossom and bloom in defiance of our inhospitable terrains. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen.